This episode of Hockey Press Pass is presented in part by the Main Street Board Game Cafe in Huntington Village. Unplug your game. Buy board games. Play board games. Food and drink. Fun. And friends. Bob McKenzie, quite simply, who are your three all-time favorite hockey players? Boy, you really put me on the spot early here. Um, you know what? Um, as a kid who grew up in the 60s and 70s um, in Toronto, um, I have to go with uh, Bobby Orr as one of my favorites. Um, and to get to know Bobby, um, you know, long after he stopped playing, um, so I'd put Bobby Orr in that category. I'd have to put Wayne Gretzky in that category as well. Um, I mean, it's not a very original list when you start coming up with Bobby Orr and Wayne Gretzky. There should be something a little more, uh, a little more uh, quirky or different. Start listing off the greatest players of all time. But the thing I really loved about Wayne was he just he loved to talk hockey, and he was so accommodating with the media, and and. You know, not, not to draw out the longest answer ever for three players that are my favorites or whatever, but times have changed so much. And, you know, as Zoom interviews with players, it's hard for media to get one-on-one time with, with players. I can remember the 1991 Canada Cup after practice sitting in the Maple Leaf Gardens dressing room with Mark Messier, Wayne Gretzky, and, and these guys, and just talking hockey after practice, you know, sitting around and, and Wayne just loved the game so much. And so, so Bobby Orr, Wayne Gretzky. And I guess as a kid who grew up in Toronto in the 60s, idolizing the Leafs of that era, um, and not because he became a donut magnate, but uh, Tim Horton was my favorite player um, growing up. So I'd, uh, I never got to really meet him or talk to him or anything. He, uh, he passed away when I was a teenager, but... Um, he was one of my favorites. Well, those choices and nice recollection of the days when we used to sit around and, and talk to each other, right? Uh, this is Hockey Press Pass, presented by Instat Hockey. Our guest is TSN's Bob McKenzie, who in 2015 was recognized by the Hockey Hall of Fame, the recipient of the El- Elmer Ferguson Award, chosen by his colleagues in the Professional Hockey Writers Association. And I want to say this, folks. No one in my lifetime is a fan as a PR person with an NHL team, a writer, and now a fan again, has been better in the field of hockey media and just as importantly, is more highly regarded and respected in the industry than Bob. So this is a complete privilege for me, Bob, and I thank you very, very much for doing this. Well, thanks, Chris. I always enjoyed working with you on all sides of the fence, whichever one you happen to be on at any given time. Um, you know, I can, uh, one of my, one of my, we, we joke all the time about funny stories over the course of the game. And I'll always remember, um, doing the NHL draft and Pierre Maguire just going off on Mike Milbury and the New York Islanders for taking Robert Nilsson ahead of Zach Parise. And, um, and you were working for the Islanders, of course. And, and I seem to recollect it, 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 if, if, if the stories have been embellished over the years, I apologize. But Gordon Miller, myself, and Pierre Maguire on the air. And if anybody knows the way the thing's structured, there's a big riser at the one end of the rink where we're doing the broadcast, facing away from the stage, our backs to the stage. 
but then there's a, a, a big media area with a, a step riser that comes up towards the back. And you, I guess Pierre was just killing you guys for, for taking Nilsson over Parise, which in fairness to Pierre, wasn't a bad call. <laughs> but anyways, you had the watch party going somewhere on Long Island. And as your job, you came up and you looked at Gordon, you're like, I'm going to cut it out. We're getting killed here. And we were, it was all I could do to, I looked around and saw you and Gordon and I are looking at each other and Pierre's just going off. And I'm like, oh man, this is classic. I love this business. <laughs> oh, I love it too. And you, you, you remember it well. It, it continued for a long time, so much so that I went back down and I remember looking up and and I was and I kept on getting word about the draft party back on the island, and he just was hair was relentless, and I was oh, like, yeah. please make it stop! I'm just yelling out, I get it, we get it. You don't like the pick, I get it. <laughs> make it stop. And irony of ironies or coincidences, Zach Priesty today is on the New York Islanders all these years later. All yeah, these perfect. Years. perfect. Oh, oh just great. Um, so we start with this when you were attending Ryerson. I know you wanted to be a hockey writer. It's fairly well documented how passionate you were about it. But one, did you envision a career as the trusted hockey insider, the scoop guy? No. The, okay. Never. I just, yeah, I didn't, uh, I didn't have any grand aspiration other than I wanted to be a hockey writer. And as I said before, I was a kid growing up in the Toronto in the sixties. And so I, I, I was a voracious reader and, um, I was so bad at math and science that I knew my future was going to be tied to reading, speaking, or um, the written or spoken word, as opposed to trying to do anything that related to numbers or science or logic. Um, and so I would read the, the Toronto Star, Brett Burnett at the time, Frank Orr. Um, I would read the, uh, the Globe and Mail, I think it was Rex McLeod and Trent Frame at the time, and uh, um, so, so many other, Jim Coleman, and uh, the guys at the Toronto Telegram and and uh, just just tremendous hockey writers, you know, Milt Dunnell at the start, Jim Proudfoot at the start, Frank Orr, Red Burnett. Um, those were the guys I all aspired to be. Um, I, I think I knew early enough in my life I was never going to be a hockey player, even though I loved hockey and wanted to be as good as I could at it. But um, I probably knew from the get-go that, um, you know, I had my limitations and that, you know, I, I think I envisioned even at that age being, you know, when the Leafs were winning the cup in 67, envisioning one day, maybe I could be like Red Burnett and, uh, and that. So, yeah, it, um, that was sort of a goal. And I, I didn't, all I wanted to be was a hockey writer. And I didn't know much more what it entailed other than going to practice and going to games all the time and f- traveling with the team. And, and uh, I just thought that would be a, a cool existence. And the funny thing is, I never actually got to be a beat reporter. Um, you know, I I became editor in chief of the Hockey News in 1982. I did that for nine years. Then I went to the Toronto Star. And that was as close as I got as the hockey columns with the Toronto Star in terms of covering the Leafs and traveling and doing that. But it still wasn't quite the same as being a beat reporter covering the whole league and and what have you. But um, and then I went back to the Hockey News for a bit, and then I did all the TSN stuff simultaneous in the 90s when my newspaper jobs and then in 2000 I got rid of the newspaper job and finally concentrated just on being quote unquote the hockey insider um, but to, to answer your question never dreamed 
of doing what I ended up doing. Never thought about being on television or radio or doing anything other than typing out a story after a game. And part two to this question, it's, I gotta believe it's number, it's it's a no. But hey, you never know. Did you envision a late career transition to booze mogul as purveyor of the Bobby Margarita brand, now available in Alberta and coming soon in Nova Scotia, Ontario, and Saskatchewan? We're recording this on the day that it launched. I woke up and I said, "Oh man, this guy's got a long day ahead of him." Uh, so, 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 you know, could you have ever pictured the entrepreneurial side with your family? I know is involved too. So, there you go. There you go. Bob is holding there you it go. up. The legend of Bobby Margarita on the other side of the can. In, in answer to your question, um, no, I never imagined it at all. Um, the, I partnered with a company called Ace Beverage Company. It's a, a Ontario-based company. They're very big with ready-to-drink cocktails and things like a lot of vodka coolers and beer and stuff like that. Um, but one of the promotional stories that one of the stories that appeared in the hockey news, uh, it's not in the hockey news, rather TSN.ca today, Ken Campbell wrote it for TSN.ca. There was a quote from one of the, uh, the marketing VP at, at Ace Beverage. And he said that he was talking about Bobby Margarita, this product that we're putting out. And he said, he goes, Bob's one of the first people that ever came to us where he had a brand, but no product. And it's really kind of true because Five years ago, it was playoffs of 2016. It's late April, early May. I've been working every night for like three or four weeks. I know I'm going to be working every night for the next eight or nine weeks. I did an early sports center hit. I had an hour or two to kill. I was kind of bored. Uh, what am I going to do? I went shopping. I went over to Best Buy across the road from TSN in Scarborough, just walking around, killing time, looking to spend some money or do something. And I saw this uh, Jimmy Buffett. Margaritaville frozen concoction maker was lime green and I looked at it and I said wow I, I'm only dreaming of being on vacation in July but I could really see myself firing that thing up and making some frozen margaritas I'm gonna buy it so I bought it and I took it home that night my wife said we don't need one of those I got a blender and I said that doesn't matter it doesn't look like this this is Jimmy Buffett it's green I love it and never took it out until the first week of July free agent frenzy was over I was well into my holidays on July of 2016 i said i gotta fire up that margarita maker so i fired it up made frozen margaritas googled the recipe online martha stewart's margarita recipe and followed it meticulously and it made great margaritas and i loved it and i chronicled the whole thing on twitter and i changed my twitter handle to bobby margarita and it really kind of took off a little bit it didn't go viral but it it did go pretty big and people started to kind of buy into the whole thing. They just liked the sound of the name and the fact that I was acting like an idiot. I'm like 50, 60 years old. Well, let's see, I'm 65 now, so it was six years ago. So I was 59 years old and I'm acting like a teenager, idiot, um, posting me drinking and mixing margaritas and calling myself Bobby Margarita with sunglasses on in my kitchen. I mean, it's the height of immaturity, which is great because I've never really grown up. And... Uh, and, and the, the, the whole thing caught on a little bit. So I, the more people bought into it, the more people, the, the more I bought into it. And we kind of created this persona on holidays of being Bobby Margarita and having fun with it. So my son, Sean, and I 
always talked about, wouldn't it be cool to actually have a drink called Bobby Margarita? Too bad a tequila company didn't come to us and pitch something to us. Or And then Sean said, maybe we should just put out some T-shirts and hats. People seem to like the Bobby Margarita brand. And I said, yeah, that'll be fun. But one of those things you talk about you never do. And then just out of the blue, last March, Sean got a phone call from a guy named Brock James, who worked for this Ace Beverage Company. Sean knew him from their days in London, Ontario, when Sean was going to college there. He was a beer salesman back then for Molson. And um, he just wanted to get some Ace Hill um, Mexican lager beer to Sean to, to sample and maybe promote online or something. And Sean says, give me a call. And uh, so Sean, he called and Sean explained the whole, what do you think, Bobby Margarita, ready to drink margarita? Do you think it might work? And he goes, oh, this sounds interesting. That was last March. Here we are nine months later, and there's the can, and uh, here's the actual drink, which I'm enjoying right now. <laughs> I'm my first one, so don't worry. We're not over the legal limit yet. Oh, uh, but I, the night is young. I'm enjoying this, but let's be honest, this podcast would be even better if this was your third one. <laughs> um, I'll call, I'm going to call you back in an hour. Uh, how's this for a segue, a transition? You, you, you are kind of an entrepreneur. You have built things before. There's so many things I could ask you about, but it is one of the more you know tangible memories of my uh, young adulthood and, and thousands, if not millions, of other people. The hockey news draft issue, right? So, yeah. you you got that baby at the newsstand or in the mail, and. I'd sit at the, then as I got older, I'd sit at the Islander draft table and say, well, Bob and the guys at the hockey news think, well, maybe, you know, Nielsen's ahead of, uh, uh, Parisi's ahead of Nielsen. Um, how did that, how did that come together and evolve? I know that's a big question, but that, that, that was a great thing. It still is, uh, but it, it was a great thing that your team built. You know, for, I covered junior hockey. My first newspaper job was at the Sioux Star in, in Sault Ste. Marie, covered the Sioux Greyhounds. My first summer job was 78. That was the summer Wayne Gretzky left Sault Ste. Marie for the WHA, and I had a summer job interning at the Sioux Star. Um, and then I got hired full-time the following year when I graduated from Ryerson, and I covered the Sioux Greyhounds. So I really enjoyed junior hockey, and a big part of junior hockey, obviously, is the NHL draft. And when I was in the rink, I would get to meet NHL scouts and see them, and it, it, it and it was the other element to it was my brother-in-law. Um, uh, I married his sister. His name was John Goodwin. He was playing for the Sioux Greyhounds. I actually went to school with his sister, and who we got married in 1979. Um, and he was playing. For, he got drafted by the Greyhounds right at the the summer that Gretzky left and probably made the Greyhounds as a rookie in the OHL that year because Gretzky left and there was an open spot at center. And he had a real good year. He, he won Rookie of the Year in the OHL. He beat Don Beaupre out for Rookie of the Year. He had 9,600 points his first year. Uh, his third year in the league, he he won the, the scoring championship but didn't get drafted. And in fact, he went through two NHL drafts and didn't get drafted. He was only 6 feet, 100 and, 60 some odd pounds he wasn't the fastest skater in the world and if you remember hockey back in 79 80 it was uh it, it was pretty uh, dangerous uh, game to play and uh, but anyways because of him i was really acutely aware of people young players trying to make it and the draft and so i i, I always had a, a natural sort of tendency to be interested in the draft 
And I think some people are just wired that way. And I was one of those people. And I got to be honest with you, there was no coverage. When I started at the Hockey News in 1982, in, in mainstream media, newspapers, in magazines, and I mean, there was no real internet or anything to speak of back then. There was no NHL draft coverage, zero. And I thought, this doesn't make sense. And so I'd have to look it up online or maybe your producer could look it up online while we talk here. But what was whatever year that Dana Merzen went in the draft, I don't know why I remember Dana Merzen, but the very first draft preview I did was just a page or two in the Hockey News, and it was ranking the top five or top ten picks. I want to say it was around 1985, 86, somewhere around there. But anyways, uh, Dana Merzen, uh, did he go fifth overall to the Vancouver Canucks or Hartford Whalers or whatever it was? I forget. Anyways, I digress. But um, that, that was the little bit of draft coverage that I started. And then I thought, no, you know what? We, we need to roll this out. And we made the draft preview a, a separate standalone publication at a time when nobody was doing anything. The only other the only other draft, in all these scouting services now, there's a, like a gazillion of them. The only other guy that I can remember doing it in any meaningful way was a guy named Kyle Woodleaf, who had something called the Redline Report. And that was more a personal scouting service where he scouted the players themselves, gave his assessments, teams or organizations would buy that service from him. And it was a, it was a confidential thing. And the reason it was called Redline is because the pages were all printed on red paper, yeah. so they couldn't be duplicated. You couldn't photocopy them. I don't know how that works, but as I said, I was no good in science or what have you. But there, as, just to underline, there was no draft coverage at all. And I really ramped that up and kind of made it my some ways my nom de plume and became, you know, quote unquote, a draft expert. Although my expertise in the draft only extended as far as whatever the scouts would tell me and the trust I would develop between them because I had so many other things to do in my job. I didn't have time to go watch junior hockey every day, but I did watch a lot of junior hockey too. No, that's, I mean, but that's why we love the bat. And I, boy, I wish I had a copy of every single one of those um, because, because you were using the collective voice by polling other scouts, right? It wasn't somebody saying, I have all the answers here. But do you look back, by the way, Dana Merzen was fifth overall in 1985. So you were right. And did you, um, do you, ever look back we have you know we we poke fun of teams for missing out on guys it's such a crapshoot i know that's a cliche but are there some that stay with you as either points of pride that you got this you had a player say earlier than he wound up going and he wound up being great or the or the other way around right where some of you had i'm sure there are both and probably the problem being 65 is you don't remember things as well as you'd like i always tell my my, I, i get a you know, I do a million things a year where people say, you know, give us advice for the business. What would you recommend? And I always, the very first thing I tell all young people in the business is keep a journal, take notes, keep track of everything you do. Um, and not maybe you want to write a book one day. And if you do, you've got all the material right there. But it, it just, I don't know. It, it, I think it, it helps you to understand your growth and the mistakes you made and the, 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 the good things that you did. Um, there's actually a tangible record of it all there. And it's, the mind is a funny thing. It plays tricks on you. I've, I've remembered things and thought, I know 100% this is exactly how it happened. And then I would go back and read an actual article that I wrote about it. And I'm like, I don't know. I must have made some of that shit up because 
and that's not the way it was. So the mind plays the, the funny tricks on you. So I say write everything down. But I do have people. Well, you know, every so often on social media or whatever, somebody will pull a YouTube clip from like the 1987 draft or the 1992 draft, and it'll be me going on about how this guy's compared to Wayne Gretzky or whatever. And of course, the guy never played a game in the National Hockey League or whatever. So somebody will throw it up there, and and that, and I, I, I don't, I never took a point of pride of, you know. Like when Neil Brady bombed out at whatever he was, third overall, or Doug Smith with the L.A. Kings, uh, you know, I, I didn't take that personally because I had them rated highly because that was the consensus. That that was – those were not off-the-board picks. That, that's what most of the scouts were, were feeling at the time. So. That's true. But I, there, there's I, – I got a million draft stories, most of which I've forgotten, but they pop up in my mind – about this or that and uh, uh, the draft is a great source of um, entertainment amusement and uh, intrigue for me um, and there's so many funny great off the wall stories that I can think about now give me a chuckle about all draft related we'll be right back with more Bob McKenzie on Hockey Press Pass hey guys it's producer Pat Boyle and I want to tell you about Instat Hockey Instat Hockey offers the largest statistical data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Their work is trusted at every level of the game by coaches, scouts, players, and of course, members of the media like the people we spotlight each week on Press Pass. There's no better choice than Instat to help in the evaluation of games and individual players. The Instat Hockey platform saves the user hours of time watching game film as team and player statistics are pre-cut into separate playlists including players' individual shifts. All video clips can be edited, shared, and downloaded by the user. Chris has used the platform for years. He trusts it, and so have some of the head coaches he's worked with in the past. So I hope you check them out. And they were also the first to give Hockey Press Pass some love. So please visit instatsport.com hockey today for more info. Again, visit instatsport.com hockey for more info. Hey guys, it's Pat, and I want to tell you about Main Street Board Game Cafe in Huntingdon Village on Long Island's North Shore. A huge selection of hobby and family strategy board games for sale, from old favorites to the hottest new releases. A library of over 400 board games for open play every day. Our staff help you pick out games and show you how to play. Find your crowd at one of our Magic The Gathering, Pokemon, or Dungeons & Dragons events for adults and kids, including our D&D after-school program, Offered both virtually and in person. A full-service cafe, food and drink, coffee and desserts, beer and wine, fun and friends. Located at 307 Main Street in Huntington Village, go to MainStreetBoardGameCafe.com for more information. Main Street Board Game Cafe. Unplug your game. It's the single day that I miss the most of being there. So, so July 8, 2009... It was a day of, you might, maybe you'd say infamy or historic. That's the day you sent your first tweet. Now, I I did not know that. And you know what's weird about it, too? As soon as you said the date, I'm like, July 8th, okay. I was kind of probably going on vacation. Well, that's that's what makes me ask. I just thought of it now because I know how much, you know, Bobby Bobby Margarita, granted, it was five years ago, but how seriously uh, as you should well, you I, take your I, vacation, I, I, vacation and you try, and we're doing this in december uh, because uh, you rightfully said this is when i get back at it and so 
So I don't know what compelled you to tweet on July 8, 2009, but my bigger question is how did the Twitter how did Twitter change the job for you? Oh boy. Um, well, what I remember is Darren Dreger actually started probably six months earlier than me. I think somebody at TSN said, hey, this Twitter is uh, an interesting animal. You guys should get on that. And I think Dregs jumped on it and was doing it. And I was kind of like, nah, nah, doesn't make sense. I'm not, you know, not wasting my time with that stuff. Twitter, kind of tweet. Tweet sounds stupid. Twitter sounds stupid. I'm not doing that. And, um, and then I, I started watching Greg's do stuff and he was like occasionally breaking some stories on it. And, and then I'm, I'm understanding a little better what, what's involved with what Twitter is. And it dawned on me as I looked at it and I said, oh, okay, I, I'm not going to call it Twitter, Twitter. It's a news cooperative. And, and so there's all these media people who are providing their work ostensibly for free in a manner of speaking. Um, and you give to this news feed, but you also take from this news feed. And so I started thinking like, you know, and, and as time wore on, the beat reporters would be on it and they'd be live tweeting practice. And so, you know, Dave Molinari with his characteristic excitement, level of excitement would say, you know, Sidney Crosby blocked the shot in practice. He's gone to the dressing room. And so I'd be, I'm an insider. I'm like, oh my goodness, I better check on that. And, and or, or five minutes later, Dave Molinari would tweet the Sidney's back. He's okay or whatever. And, and so I realized that this is a great way to really simultaneously cover all the cities in the national. If you set up your feed properly and get all the beat reporters and all the important media people and they all, pour their information into it and you can take it that makes you you know wise in terms of all of that raw information that's out there and that's what i that's what i traded is information so the more information i can get the quicker i can get it the easier i can get it it's great and and it's only fair that if i'm taking all this well then i better give back because it shouldn't be a one-way street so that's what i did um, now, how has it changed the job completely, completely, utterly revolutionized it both for the better and for the worse, because it, it created a 24-7 news cycle where you could break news or be your own news organization um, anytime you like. And, and that was great. And it gave so many people who didn't have a platform a, a platform. You, you didn't have to work for a newspaper if you were really industrious. And you had a good Twitter account and you were either funny or entertaining or had information or, you know, worked hard. Um, you could create a niche where people would follow you and you'd gain a, a following out of virtually nothing. So that revolutionized how the media worked. Um, it didn't have to be mainstream media anymore. And, um, and, and that, and yet for mainstream media, you know, I remember the good old days, even when I was at Star, a hockey columnist, you'd go to practice, you'd go to a game, when the game or the practice was over, you'd go to the bar, you'd go home, and the paper was put to bed for the night, and there was no internet, and there was nothing more you could do, um, so you'd go and have a good time. And now, after the game is over, you could be driving home, and all of a sudden, somebody would tweet, oh, could be a trade here, and now... Beat reporters, I, I've got 
so much admiration for the guys that do the beat reporter job. Um, I look at guys like Mike Russo and Aaron Portsline and others around the National Hockey League. Um, it's just it's just endless. Morning, noon, night, seven days a week, you know, 30, 31 days of the month, 10, 11 months of the year. They're, they're on it. It's, it's relentless. And and that I think that wears you out. I think it kind of burns you out a little bit. And, um, and I think, too, the social media has even changed even more now where it's become a different beast entirely. I mean, that's actually too detailed to even go into on these recollections. That's more a future thing, I think. Yeah, no. And the way you explained Twitter and how you got it to work and see it that way, it was actually brilliant because I hadn't thought of it that way because I was going to ask you, you know, you're giving this stuff in some cases away for free, but you were getting stuff from the other writers. It makes sense. When the NHL broadcast rights went to Sportsnet, there's no doubt in my mind you and Drager and other people uh, could have moved over, uh, but you, you you stayed. You certainly had nothing to prove, and don't get me wrong, but as a competitive person that I know you to be, were you fired up in the, those early days uh, to um, uh, to break even more news, and or at least at the same rate that you were? We, we, did, did you get a new level of inspiration? Well, we... <clears throat> I've been through the losing the national rights thing at TSN twice. A lot of people forget there was a three-year window, maybe a five-year window, but I think it was a three-year window. Um, when Maybe it was a five-year window. Late 90s, early 2000s, where Sportsnet got the national rights away from TSN. And in fact, that was the catalyst for why TSN ultimately hired me full-time. Uh, uh, took me out of my newspaper job. Part of it was because... I was getting burnt out from working a full-time newspaper job and a full-time TV job. And I, I was starting to get worn down. And I said, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. So I said to TSN, if you want me to keep doing it, you're going to have to buy all my time. And they were like, well, I don't think we're going to be able to do that. Um, and I go, well, that's fine. Then, then I've got to make a decision to either give half my time to you or half my time to the, the star or the hockey news or whatever. But I can't do both, um, so I might pick you. I might pick them. I don't know. But uh, and and that and then TSN then TSN lost the rights, and it suddenly became much more important to TSN to maintain that standing in the. You know, we we kind of prided ourselves on we wanted to be the source for all things hockey, um, and and TSN.ca was a thriving entity. Um, and, and I was utilizing the, the, the more liberal technology and availability of an instant news feed on tsn.ca or being able to go on TV live after newspapers had put their papers to press or whatever. So we did, we did well with that, and we created that, that aura of myself and a whole bunch of other people that um, we were the source, the source for hockey news and information. And... When they lost the rights, TSM wanted to make sure they didn't lose that standing. And so they were um, suddenly more interested in buying all my time. And so that's what we did. And and yes, in answer to your question, especially that first time, I was highly motivated. We were all highly motivated to stay in the game and not become irrelevant. And then we got the rights back. And we that was great for a, a long period of time. And then we lost the rights again. But when we lost them the second time, 
it was the, it was the Whopper because it was a 12 year deal that Rogers Sportsnet got, and it was for the whole enchilada, uh, all of it. And even when we TSN had national rates before, we split them with CBC or we split them with Sportsnet or whatever. This time it was it was game set match. So you're right. When when that happened, we were all sort of like myself, James Duffy, Darren Dreger, anybody anybody at TSN who was in the hockey game. We kind of looked at it and we're like, hmm. Where, what's what's going to happen here? You know, should we should we go try to go? Even though we all had contracts, but then you get into whether the no, the non competes are really ironclad or not. But and, and anyways, long story short, um, TSN didn't want to lose us. They stepped up in a big way to ensure that they didn't lose us. And but it was hard, no doubt. Um, but I got to be honest with you, they're looking back on it now. From, from a career point of view and um, financially and, and otherwise, um, is one of the, it, it really hurt from a professional point of view, um, but there, there were a whole bunch of other elements, including a lot of professional aspects of it too, where we were like, it was, one of the, one of, it was a positive, it turned out, you always find it flipped the, the negative to a positive somehow, and, and I think ultimately we did that. And we took great pride in trying to be relevant. And, uh, you know, we always used to joke there were only two days in the year where we were actually on a level playing field with Sportsnet. One was trade deadline day and one was free agent day because they're the only two days of the year when the hockey fan in Canada has an absolute choice to watch one or the other and get his news information in hockey that day because, you know, if, if, if they've got this, if they've got the Stanley Cup playoffs and we don't have the Stanley Cup playoffs, well, that's you know, nobody's watching us outside of what we're doing on Sports Center for April, May, and June. We knew that. That's fair enough, and that's part of being a rights holder. You you get more eyeballs and in those situations. But those two days in particular, I know we looked and we viewed it as okay. This is go time. It's us against them, and it's up to the the. the the, the viewers and the fans, hockey fans in Canada, decide where they're getting their information from. And point of pride is from the moment we lost those rights to now, um, you know, from a ratings perspective, um, we've done very, very well um, in, that, in that time. And it, and it was a point of pride, and, but it was still hard. But it all, you know, as I said, personally, it opened the door for me to be able to go and do NBC. Um, part of the reason I got to do NBC um, was because Wednesday night was National Rights Night. TSN didn't need me on Wednesday night. NBC could use me and Darren Dreger. And so we got to go to NBC, and that was fun. And that was a great run. And I got to do more NHL drafts, and I didn't think I was going to get to do the draft anymore, but I did. And, um, and then, of course, NBC lost the rights last year, so I was like, I'm – I, 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 sent, uh, I sent Gary Bettman a, a, a very lighthearted email that said, uh, I, I must be the curse around here because uh, this is the third time in my career that uh, the NHL has gotten, gotten rid of the network that, uh, that I'm, I'm working for. And he, he just laughed and thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. Do you, uh, are there areas... You're, you're somebody who loves the game your entire life. Are there areas where you wish the NHL 
was better or you feel needs to be better in the years ahead? Oh, I don't think there's any doubt, any doubt about that. Um, you know, back in, well, the early 2000s, I, I want to say it was around 2004, 2005, thereabouts. Um, I was, I was kind of on a soapbox in those days that the NHL was going down the wrong road on head trauma concussions and um, I was very vocal about it maybe some people would say too much and I felt at times I was starting to become a little bit of a one-trick pony and I started to feel like I was the Minister of Health and Safety for for the National Hockey League um, but that's because I had personal experience with kids who experienced some really bad concussions in hockey and, and had some real difficult times because of traumatic brain injuries suffered in playing hockey and I and I said at the time, and, and I, I firmly believe it then, and I it, I think it's proven true today. You know, I, I, I just feared there was going to be a terrible day of reckoning in professional hockey, and, and as well as you know football, soccer. We didn't realize it in soccer, but heading the ball is terrible for you. Um, you know, and obviously boxing and MMA and all that kind of stuff. But I, I just thought, you know this is not headed in the right direction because this is a serious, serious issue. And yet, you know, the NHL's and all professional sport at the highest level, part of the reason why people watch it is because it is dangerous because there are people going out there getting paid millions of dollars to do things that no sane or average person in the street would or could do. And so should the rules be any different for them and anyways, I, I was on a soapbox back then about every hit to the head should be a penalty. And then I kind of modified my views a little bit. And I said, okay, well, maybe uh, this or that. And, and honestly, I got battle fatigue over the years. And I kind of gave up the ghost a little bit. But I, I thought the NHL should have done a better job with that. And I still think the, the you know, and, and again, it's complicated. If you, if you just saw this past week, the two Jacob Truba hits, um, you know, they're, they're so hard. Those, hit, people are getting hit in the head and it's legal by the definition of the rule. Um, is that right? I have a tough time reconciling that. And yet I know if you don't have those hits, are, are you taking hitting out of the game? So that will be one aspect. I mean, we've seen the whole thing with, with Kyle Beach and, and the systemic problems. First off, the whole Kyle Beach thing, I mean, it was horrifying. The, the, the interview that he did with Rick Westhead was just so raw and so real. It was one of the, I think for most of the people in our business, I don't know that many of us have experienced emotion on that level from somebody who was so let down by the system. Um, and, and that's really the, the, the problem. It was systemic. Um, and so many of the problems I think we have in our society today, whether it's racism or homophobia or um, toxic, mas toxic masculinity or or women being treated poorly or unfairly, so much of it is systemic. And and I think the NHL needs to continue to do a, a much better job. And obviously the, the, the Kyle Beach situation, um, you know, that was primarily the failing of a hockey organization. Um, um, people will debate whether the league could have or should have done more. Um, I think the fine to the Blackhawks could have been more. Um, because if you're going to break down what is systemic in terms of, you know, a or hockey organization putting the value of winning and, and not disrupting the run to the Stanley Cup 
at the expense of a human being who was sexually assaulted and then kicking the can down the road and, and giving a guy a recommendation who, who sexually abused people, um, you know, just to, just to maintain the status quo. Um, that's, you know, that stuff is, is unforgivable, but that's the system that was in place at the time. And we have to create a new system and we've started to because, you know, Joel Quinville lost his job. Stan Bowman lost his job. So now you would like to think in a similar situation, an organization that people in that organization who would see something like that, what would happen? And there might be a strong figure at the top of the organization, like John McDonough was with the Blackhawks who ruled with an iron fist and said, this is how we're handling this. That's the end of it. And nobody would speak up. Now I think there's people who would say, you know what? The last guys that didn't speak up in this situation, they lost their job anyway. So I might as well speak up. And if it cost me my job, it cost me my job. But at least now I'm doing the right thing so we don't repeat the same cycle. So, you know, there's always things the league could be doing better. Um, I think, and I think there are times too when it's easy to pile on the league because that's that was in, in vogue for, forever in a day. I mean, when John Ziegler ran the league, um, you know, the, the joke used to be the NHL would screw up a one-car funeral. Um, then Gary Bettman came in and he, he created a much more business-like approach. But so much so now that that business-like approach is being criticized because, and understandably so in situations like Kyle Beach where, where you know, the NHL response appeared very lawyerly at a time when people don't want lawyerly responses. They want empathetic human reaction. So, yeah, you know, and I, I was covering World Juniors today, um, but um, I, I clipped on the um, link to hear Kim Davis talking about the, the initiatives the NHL is going to uh, go on. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, Chris, I, October and November, I don't think I watched five minutes of hockey, um, NHL hockey. Um, and so I'm not well-versed on everything that's going on. I watched from afar, and as I say, you could not, be aware of what was going on with Kyle Beach, but in terms of, like, I, I, I'm no longer the hockey insider when it comes to covering the NHL. I'm more an outsider than an insider. Uh, I've talked to nobody about any of this. I don't know any of the details, and I think it's fashionable in our business today just to spout off whatever you happen to be feeling. Um, my sort of methodology for my whole career was keep my mouth shut until I get a lot of information. And a lot of people didn't like that. They thought it was mamby-pamby or seeing both sides of the story or whatever. Um, but I've always been in a business where everybody wants things to be black and white. I've always been uh, a million shades of gray guy where I can see elements from both sides. Um, and that's, you know, even using that term both sides now is triggering to some people because we're seeing the way politics is covered in the United States and there are a whole bunch of people saying you, you shouldn't be covering some of this other stuff because it's nonsensical what some of these conspiracy theorists are saying. Why would you give that equal footing when you know it's complete and utter bullshit? And I'm not suggesting for a moment that when I say, you know, both sides should be heard, I'm just saying both sides should be investigated and then make your statement or make your pronouncements on where you think things are lacking or, or working well. Well, you must be uh, very proud in the tradition. You're a journalist and you must be very proud or pleased to 
have Rick Westhead for a teammate. His work has been extraordinary, and uh, he's yeah, he's done a great job with it. And, and and so is Katie Strang at the Athletic. Yes. And, you know, they're they're investigative journalists, and it's funny because you know I'm I was the furthest thing away from investigative journalist because the job description that I ultimately created for myself or was created for me, in large part because of social media. Um, when you start parsing out information, 140 tweets, 140 characters, although this one went to 280 characters, um, you're dealing in volume. And um, and so I used to describe my job in that of being an insider or somebody. It's, it's, it's guerrilla warfare in terms of you are always on the move. If any story takes more than 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, that means you're investing all that time in something and there's a million other things going on that you not only should think you want to know but you need to know because you've got a radio hit there it, it's 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 endless so the, there's an absolute role for investigative journalism um i didn't do it but um you know i uh, i like to think anytime if i, if I heard or knew of any of the stuff that, that happened i certainly would have reported it or made sure that somebody like rick Westhead or somebody was on the case that's perfect bob uh, thank you so much for your time that was an incredible answer there and thorough and um congratulations on the launch of bobby margarita and thank you for honestly for your friendship and your professionalism over the years it was just great to have this conversation with you it means a lot to me that you did the show Awesome, Crystal. Thanks very much for uh, remembering that I still existed. And, uh, <laughs> Please. It's nice for a couple of months to get back to work, but I'm also looking forward to January 21st when I go back to being more retired than not retired. There you go. Well, good luck at WJC and everything else. Thank you so much, Bob. Awesome. Thanks very much. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. A tremendous episode with Bob McKenzie. We thank him again for joining the podcast, and we thank you guys, as always, for listening, rating, subscribing, and being part of the show. And again, please send all emails, all recommendations, things that you love about the show, send it to presspasspodcast at gmail.com. For Chris and everybody else on the team, this is Pat Boyle saying thanks so much for listening, and tune in next week for another episode on Hockey Press Pass. Hockey Press Pass.